Well, if you've been with us over these past few weeks, you know that we have been uh, nearing the end of the Gospel of John. And specifically, over the past uh, few weeks, we have been looking at uh, the night that Jesus was arrested, that he was betrayed and, and taken uh, to two trials. The first trial that was really uh, a kangaroo court, the verdict had already been decided, was a trial given by the Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. They had already decided that Jesus ought to die uh, because, uh, as far as they were concerned, he had blasphemed, calling himself and making himself equal with God. So after they rendered their verdict that he ought to die, and, and understanding uh, the, the politics of the day that, that Rome had taken over that land and that Rome had claimed uh, capital punishment for itself, uh, the Jews knew that they couldn't put Jesus to death, and so they hauled Jesus off uh, that night to, and early that morning to the governor's headquarters, Governor Pontius Pilate. We saw that trial as well. They brought Jesus to him, and knowing that he couldn't care less about some kind of religious squabble, presented Jesus to him as some kind of revolutionary, as an insurrectionist, a, a political threat to Rome. And Pilate... Uh, found Jesus to be not guilty. He questioned him and stated three times that he found no guilt in this man, and yet nevertheless, we see here in our text this morning that Jesus, a man proclaimed to be innocent, uh, was sent off nevertheless to be crucified. Our text this morning is John chapter 19. We're going to begin with verse 16. And we're going to go to verse 27. If you have your Bibles with you, as uh, each week I encourage you to open them up and keep them open as I go through the text with you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along nonetheless, you can look in the seats in front of you and underneath you'll find an English Standard Version. If you use that Bible this morning, you'll find our text on page 905. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. 
But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. We see in verse 16 that Jesus has indeed been condemned. A judgment has been rendered. And so we see here that Jesus is delivered over. Now, as I mentioned last week, Jesus has uh, probably already received one scourging already. As I mentioned last week, and for those of you who weren't here, uh, the Romans administered three levels of beatings as punishment. And if you compare John's account with Matthew, Mark's, and Luke's account, it seems as though uh, Jesus probably received an initial beating, which would have been that second level beating. Very severe to be sure, but one that was designed to punish Jesus enough as an innocent man, which is already crazy if you think about it, but punish this innocent man enough to satisfy the bloodthirstiness of these men who wanted him dead and then release him. And of course, that didn't work. Uh, Jesus was presented to them, beaten and bloodied with a crown of thorns on his head, and, and that just riled them up all the more, and they cried out all the more that he be crucified, put to death. So now we see in verse 16 that the sentence has been rendered and he has been delivered over to them, them being the Roman soldiers who now take charge of him and now see the crucifixion to its completion. Now any of his followers have uh, all power taken out of their hands and all anyone can do now is watch to see what happens to him. And it was at this point, no doubt, after the sentencing, that Jesus then received that third level of beating that I went into some detail last week, which, which would have been horrific and would have left Jesus uh, a bloody mess, uh, barely resembling a human being. What we see here, then, is that after Jesus received that scourging, uh, he went out bearing his own cross. Now, if you notice here, there is no real detailed description of what it means to be crucified. Uh, in fact, none of the Gospels really give us any description. They, they all mention it. We see here, they delivered him over to be crucified. That's verse 16. Verse 18, there they crucified him. So what the Gospels tell us is really one word. He was crucified. And of course, we know somewhat what that entails. We've seen pictures, we've seen movies, we've seen paintings, uh, we see crosses everywhere. There's one behind me this morning. But we don't really understand, I don't think, what that truly involved. I think uh, for most of us, what crucifixion involved has been somewhat uh, sanitized and, um, and scrubbed of the pain uh, but the first century readers 
who would have read this word would know exactly what was entailed. When, when they read he was crucified, they had vivid memories in their mind because Rome crucified many. And in fact, Rome made a public spectacle of it. Rome would crucify, crucify people and place the, 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 the site of execution outside of the city walls so that people entering the city would see, sometimes Rome would even line the streets uh, entering the road, line the road with people who were crucified so that people entering the city would see what happens to someone should you cross the Roman Empire. Well, crucifixion was horrific. It was often said in the ancient world that the person who was crucified died a thousand deaths. Ancient historians write about it. Ancient historians who saw with their own eyes wrote about it. The Roman historian Tacitus says, crucifixion is the most terrible of punishments that human cruelty has ever devised. The Jewish historian Josephus says, crucifixion is the most wretched of deaths. And Cicero, the Roman uh, who was uh, by, uh, by his own job uh, a, a rhetorician, uh, Cicero, a man who worked with words, says of crucifixion, crucifixion is a most cruel and terrible penalty, incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. We don't really understand the pain, the, the nature uh, and purpose of crucifixion was not simply a death penalty. It wasn't simply to end someone's life, to give them uh, a death penalty for something that they had done, but crucifixion was designed to wring the person's life out as slowly as possible while inflicting maximally and increasing pain on the person. We do have a word that we use today. Our own word to describe unbearable pain, the word excruciating, literally means out of the crucifying. We know that Jesus was nailed to the cross. Now the nails that would have been used in Christ's case were uh, like railroad spikes, five to seven inches long, long enough to, to pierce the arm and still go into the wood. And the Romans were masters at crucifying, and they made sure that when they nailed these nails in, that the median nerves would have been damaged, that the nail would have hit the nerve. And uh, forensic analysts that, that have uh, gone into in, in incredible depth in, in studying the kind of pain that was caused by crucifixion say that when these nerves were severed, uh, one forensic analyst says it would have caused, quote, a severe, burning, unrelenting pain traversing the arms like lightning bolts. To breathe, it was necessary to continually push up and lift yourself up lest you suffocate. And so the Romans added a little seat onto the cross, and that seat was not there uh, for mercy's sake. That seat was there to encourage the person cruci being crucified to fight as long as they could uh, so that the agony would go on 
even longer. One scholar writes this, Terrible muscle spasm racked the entire body, but since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. Brothers and sisters, that kind of pain is what our Savior endured that day. So don't ever think, Christian, that our God does not understand suffering. Whatever it is that you are suffering today, Christian, know that in the person of the incarnate Jesus of Nazareth, your God, whom you go to and whom you bring your pain and suffering to, knows what it means to suffer. And he knows suffering at a depth and a level that you and I will never face. Verse 17 says, He went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. As badly beaten as he was, and now no doubt bleeding profusely from the beating that he just endured with the scourging, Jesus had to walk, as was the custom of men who are crucified, he had to carry his cross to the place of execution. Now, if you've seen movies, you've probably seen him carrying and dragging along the entire thing, the cross beam and the vertical beam behind him. That's actually not what happened. Uh, The vertical beam would have already been in place at at the execution site. They reused those vertical beams over and over again. What Jesus would have been carrying was simply the cross piece on his back. Now, for those of you who lift weights, work out, uh, if you've ever tried like walking lunges or things like that, using kettlebells, you know how tiring that can be. And this cross beam weighed approximately 75 pounds. You can imagine carrying 75 pounds on your back uh, with Roman soldiers whipping you along the way and shoving you and, and mocking you, enemies surrounding you. Jesus had to carry this cross piece to this site of execution, and, and John says it's called the place of a skull, probably named that way, that, that, uh, given that name, because it was a site of execution, and so many people died there. It's also na- known as Golgotha in Aramaic, or a lot of us know it in the Latin Uh, equivalent as Calvary. Jesus bore this cross all the way. And the gospel accounts, John doesn't tell us, but the others tell us, that he was so weakened by the brutality of his beating that at a certain point he simply could not go any further on his own. And so the Roman soldiers grabbed and enlisted the help of a man who happened to be there witnessing this, a man named Simon of Cyrene. And he had to jump in and help Jesus carry this the rest of the way to the site. How interesting, then, when this was the practice of the day, when during this time, many, in fact, probably all, citizens of that day would have witnessed this exact thing at some point or other in their lifetime. They would have witnessed someone that beaten carrying a cross to a site of execution where he would be horribly tortured to death. They all knew what that meant. 
They knew what it meant to carry your cross. And how interesting then that when Jesus was teaching his followers, that when Jesus was preaching to his congregation, as it were, and he was describing to them what it meant to follow him. When he was saying, you, you want to know what it's like to be my disciple? Being my disciple, he said, is carrying your cross. He said, if anyone wants to come to me and, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do not think I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is not a seeker-friendly message. You can imagine how many people, disciples, when they heard that message, walked away because they knew what it meant to carry your own cross. And yet that's what Jesus says. And for millions of Christians throughout church history, and even for Christians today in the world, whether we know it or not, because we, we live, uh, American Christian, in, in a sort of safe bubble, if you, were, if you will, but for millions of Christians throughout history and for Christians today around the world, they understand what it means. That when they decide to follow Jesus, they are putting a death mark on their, on their life. That following Jesus means that they must be willing to give up their life. Jesus says that's what carrying your cross means. It means to count the cost of what it means to follow him. And, and even for all of us in this room, even if we aren't uh, preparing to lose physically our lives at this point, we have to be willing, as Jesus says, to put Jesus and our relationship with him above every other relationship in our lives. Jesus said, if you follow me, you may very well lose your family. I must come first. It's not easy following the Lord Jesus. Bearing your own cross and being willing to die doesn't only mean physical death. It means that whatever it is that you love in this life that is in opposition to the Lord Jesus, you must be willing to walk away from that and to follow him. Is that you this morning? Have you counted the cost of what it means to be Jesus' disciple? Do you realize what he says? That following him, you must be willing to lose everything for him. Well, that is what he says, and it's what happened to him. Verse 18, it says, 
There at this place, Calvary, Golgotha, they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. It's really interesting when you read those words that, that immediately, if you know your Old Testament, if you know especially the, the scriptures that prophesy and point forward to the crucifixion of Christ, your mind immediately goes to Isaiah 53, where Isaiah is talking about this suffering servant who is to come, who is going to bear God's wrath to save his people from their sins. And, and what does Isaiah 53, 12 says? It says of this suffering servant that he was numbered with the transgressors. We see that here in our text. He's there. He's the third guy numbered among the transgressors. Jesus even says this right before in Luke chapter 22, right before he goes out and he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he looks at his apostles and he says to them, for I tell you, that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus knew that that's, that's what was about to happen. And interestingly, Matthew and Mark, they, they call these two men, the, the two men that are on his right and left, they, they give them a, a Greek word that is the same exact Greek word that is used to describe Barabbas. So, uh, Matthew and Mark are saying that, that these two men, just like Barabbas, were insurrectionists. And scholars think that probably these two men were associates of his. Which means that Barabbas was probably scheduled to be crucified that day alongside the other two. Which means that Jesus is literally taking the place of Barabbas that day. And in fact, if Pilate chose the most despicable of the three in order to have Jesus released, if you remember from a previous sermon, then it means that Jesus, the spotless lamb, took the place of the chief of the three sinners. And you see, this Christian is, is how we ought to see ourselves. It's how the Apostle Paul saw himself at the end of his life. After he had done all of those great works for God, planting churches and, and preaching the gospel and, and being beaten and shipwrecked and everything else for the Lord, at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul said, I am the chief of sinners, and the Lord gave himself for me. You see, the more we get to know our Lord, the closer that we grow to him, the better we understand his sinlessness the better we understand His righteousness and His holiness. And the more that we grow in our own sanctification, there is this, there is this strange thing that happens in us that rather than, than us feeling more and more holy, we actually feel more and more sinful. As the Holy Spirit grows us in holiness, He uncovers sin in our lives that 10 years earlier wasn't even on our radar screen. There are things that I realize that I do now that I've always done that 10 years ago didn't bother me at all. And I think about it and I think, I can't believe I do that too. I'm worse than I, than I ever thought I was. That's what happens. We come to know as we come to understand the, the holiness of Christ that, that He gave His life for the chief of sinners, meaning me. 
And consider this, Christian. When Jesus accepted this cross, when he accepted that place on that middle cross where Barabbas should have been, he accepted the the thoughts and the and the hidden uh, the hidden accusations of thousands of people that walked by him that day. Think of the people that flooded into Jerusalem for the for the Passover who didn't know him at all, who who didn't know the situation, who who never followed him, and and yet as they walked by and saw him hanging there, must have thought this man must be a horrific person to deserve this. And yet Jesus endured it all. He endured countless untold accusations and false, slanderous ideas of who he was, and he bore that disgrace for us. You know, Christian, we too might be at some times in our life wrongly accused. Some of you in this room have been wrongly accused. You have been falsely uh, accused of something that you didn't do. Some of you have lost jobs over it. You've lost friends over it. What we have to understand, Christian, is that no matter what we are ever accused of, we will never be as wrongly accused of a crime as our Savior was that day. Verses 19 to 22 uh, describe something that was indeed um, a custom of that day. The person who had been sentenced to crucifixion not only had to carry his cross to the site, but he also had to have with him, uh, some scholars say perhaps it hung around their neck or or that that it was carried alongside of them by, by someone, maybe by one of the Roman soldiers, but a placard that described what this person had done, that the the deed for which they are being crucified was carried along so that everyone knew. Notice Jesus' placard. Notice that when you read his placard, there is no crime written on it. Jesus is once again, by God's sovereign hand of providence, declared to be completely innocent. His only crime, notice, was being who he is. Jesus is the Messiah. That sign listed and labeled him correctly. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king that was promised to David, a future king that would come from David's lineage who would be the king of the Jews and the Messiah. But look at this. Jesus is being killed for who he is. When when God came to earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, And when God came to earth and he lived a perfectly innocent and perfectly righteous and perfectly faithful life, when every second of his life was dedicated to loving God perfectly and loving his neighbor perfectly and perfectly fulfilling the law, we killed him for it. Romans 1, Paul says that by nature we hate God. That by nature, we love the darkness rather than the light. 
Paul says that we know the truth of God, he's revealed himself, but in our sin, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We even know that those who do these sinful acts are going to be punished for them, but we not only do them, but we encourage others to join us in our rebellion. Friends, all we have to do is look at the cross to see that in our sin nature, we hate God simply for who he is. The Jewish leaders, of course, didn't like what Pilate wrote. They said, look, too many Jews are reading that he is the king of the Jews. You've got to erase that. Put on there that he said he was the king of the Jews. And notice Pilate will have nothing of it. Pilate makes it clear that he is the authority. And Pilate says, look, what I have written, I have written. In other words, don't you dare change it or else. It's interesting, isn't it, how Pilate finally gets a spine Pilate, who all this time has been wanting to free Jesus or hoping this would happen and all this, has nevertheless uh, bowed to the pressure of these religious leaders. But finally, in this last, uh, this, this last action, he gets his fine. He says, I don't care what you guys want. I'm leaving what I wrote. Pilate, I don't know why he, he, he made such a point of leaving that on there. Uh, probably a combination of the fact that, that he did consider Jesus innocent, m m maybe also uh, the fact that he wanted to rub it in these guys' faces. He didn't like them very much. But whatever his ends, notice again that God is sovereignly ruling over all of this, that God is, is sovereignly using this pagan ruler to declare to the whole world who his son truly is. And notice that it that it is written for the whole world. Jesus' sign, I don't, I don't know if this was, was common, uh, but Jesus' sign sure was written in three different languages. Aramaic or Hebrew, which was used around that area so that people living in that area who spoke Aramaic could read it. It was also written in Latin, the, the language of the, the government and the military so that the Roman soldiers could read who it was. Jesus is, and it was written in Greek, and Greek was the sort of language of the day for, for travelers who were coming from far away who, who spoke neither Latin nor Aramaic could also read it because it said it in Greek. That meant that quite literally people from every nation who came into Jerusalem that day could look at the cross and read in their language and understand who Jesus was. That he is and was truly the king of the Jews. It's interesting how even here, even in a sense prior to the resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, even here there's kind of a foreshadowing that Jesus is going to draw people from every tribe and tongue and nation to recognize who he is. Verses 23 through 24 describes this horrible game of uh, casting lots that the soldiers do for Jesus' clothes. We see here that, uh, that his clothes are divided into four parts. That would have included his sandals and, and his belt. You know, any, anything that he had on him that day were divided up among these four soldiers who were crucifying him. 
And there was one thing left, and it was a tunic. So Jesus had five things on him, and they, they didn't want to rip the tunic up and divide that into four parts. So they say, let's keep the tunic uh, one whole piece, and we will gamble for it and see who wins, and the winner takes all. This, again, uh, shows us that our idea and our concept and the pictures and the, and the paintings that we've seen of the crucifixion are really wrong. And I understand why we portray this way, that we, when Jesus is depicted on the cross, he's given something to wear. Something, even as little as a loincloth, but, but something is covering his nakedness and shame. But that isn't true. Jesus that day on the cross was stripped completely naked. Everything that he owned was taken from him, even down to the clothes on his back. Jesus, in the end, lost everything that he had. It was stolen from him. And yet, John, again, wanting to show that in the midst of the shame, in the midst of the mockery, that God was in charge, that God was sovereignly ordaining all things that come to pass, that he was directing and planning this. We see John say, this happened so that Scripture might be fulfilled. And how amazing that the scripture that is quoted is from Psalm 22, a psalm that was written by David a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. Now, I said that, that the New Testament, the Gospels, don't really get into description of what crucifixion involves, but all you need to do is read Psalm 22, and you get the best description of the physical anguish on the cross that you find anywhere in the Bible. A thousand years before it happened, David perfectly described what would happen on the cross. I don't know what David was suffering, but it's interesting that at one point, David describes his suffering as they, whoever it is that is uh, punishing David and, and coming after him, he says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. What an interesting description when crucifixion at that time had not even been invented yet. And yet David is describing having his hands and feet pierced. These Roman soldiers are no doubt doing this uh, for their own intended purposes, just like Pilate. They were just being greedy. They were just doing what always happened. The, the soldiers always got whatever the condemned criminal had on him. But while they were doing whatever it is that they wanted to do, God had sovereignly ordained this to happen centuries before it happened, and Scripture was being fulfilled. John says, so the soldiers did these things. But then he gives us in verse 25 a contrasting statement. He says, so the soldiers did these things, but he contrasts what the soldiers are doing with what those who love Jesus dearly are doing. He says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they speak of women who are standing somewhere near the cross. They don't uh, give uh, John as, as being there. John, though, as an eyewitness, says he was there as well. 
But they talk about uh, women standing kind of afar from the cross. And yet, John here is describing how, at this point, they are near the cross. One scholar uh, says this, it was natural, see, family members and, and friends would oftentimes be there on the day of execution. And one scholar says this, it was natural and, and perhaps inevitable that during the long vigil, some who loved him would venture closer and then being revulsed by the suffering would drift away again only to return later. You can imagine what that must have been like. I mean, to, to be helpless like that, to, to, to be completely unable to stop the suffering and to know that the suffering is not happening in a hospital where you can turn to a doctor and say, hey, can you administer more of the morphine? I, I think the pain is increasing. But to know that wherever you look, the only person you're going to find is an executioner who hopes the pain is increasing and is doing all he can to increase the pain. I can't imagine what that must have been and felt like for those who were standing there. John tells us that one of the people standing there was Jesus' mother, Mary. You imagine having raised him from the womb and having received nothing from him but perfect love, perfect obedience, never having had this boy once in his life wronged you and been loved that way, and now see him suffering in this way, knowing that he's never done anything wrong to anyone. And yet, even that fulfills Scripture. Because when Jesus was still an infant, and they brought Jesus to the temple, Simeon held Jesus in his arms, and as he uh, prophesied all of the great and wondrous things that Jesus would do, that, that now he saw the Lord's Messiah, he could die in peace. He looked at Mary, and he said to Mary, your heart and your soul is going to be pierced one day. No doubt this was the time, the piercing of her soul that Simeon had prophesied 33 years earlier. Now as they're looking at Jesus, he John says, looks at them. And it says, seeing her, his mother, and the apostle John, who's also standing there, that seeing them from the cross, think of this, Jesus makes sure in all of his suffering, in all of his agony, in all of his pain, he makes sure that his mother is going to be taken care of when he's gone. Mary is no doubt a widow at this time, or else Joseph would have been the one caring for her. So Joseph has died. Mary is probably in her 50s. And at that time, in those days, widows were the most vulnerable of people. So much so that the Old Testament all throughout talks about how we need to be caring and, and looking after widows. And isn't it interesting and profound that the Lord Jesus, the writer of that word, the author of the Old Testament is putting into practice what he tells us to do from the cross in his great agony. Jesus, being her firstborn son, would have borne the responsibility of caring for her. And now he's going to be gone. So he turns over 
the care to the Apostle John. It says there, John says that from that day on, uh, she was taken into his home. Now, when you look at what happens uh, in the future, it's not all written in Scripture, but when you read church history, you find out that every apostle, save for John, was martyred pretty early on in life. John lived to a ripe old age and was exiled on Patmos. And I have to wonder if God providentially kept John alive so that he could fulfill this promise that he made to Jesus. Because by the time he died in exile, she would have been dead already. Now notice a few things about this little conversation. Notice first that Jesus calls her woman and not mother. Calls her woman and not mother. Now we have to understand, first of all, that woman is not a derogatory term. It is rather a term of respect. It's a term of endearment. And remember, Jesus has already used this word woman for her. We see that all the way back at the very start of his ministry. When Jesus changed water into wine at the wedding of Cana, when they ran out of wine and Mary came to him and told him that they had run out of wine. And Jesus responds this way, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. How amazing then that, that she hears that word again, woman, at the moment now of his greatest sign, his own death and resurrection, where he glorified God more than every other sign that he had, uh, had performed up till that point, and here, now that his hour has arrived, he calls her woman again. And Jesus, I think, is signaling here to her and to us as we read this that their relationship has now changed fundamentally. That whereas as a boy growing up in her home before he started his public ministry, whereas before he went to the cross and died for sins and rose as the Lord, the risen Lord, never to die again, she was his mother. And although he is caring for her in his last act here of, of concern for her, he is caring for her as his widowed mother, by calling her woman, I think he is signaling to her that now she is primarily his disciple like everyone else. That, in other words, Mary must now begin to look at Jesus not as her son, but as her Lord. But think about it. Why is this exchange even happening? Why, why must she be handed over to John? Well, it's obvious why. Je Jesus is, is dying as well. Jesus isn't going to be around any longer. I mean, he will be in his resurrected, of course, state, and he'll ascend to the Father, but he will no longer be walking the earth as he did before. This exchange is happening precisely because Jesus has gone, gone to the cross. Now think about that. Jesus, I'm sure more than anyone else on this earth, would have been the greatest caretaker of all for his mother. He was sinless. He would have made every right and loving decision for his mother. Far, far greater than John could have been. And yet, something that I didn't think of at all, but when I was reading John Calvin this week, he 
he brought this to mind, and I thought, that, that's amazing. He said this, Jesus is putting his heavenly father before his earthly mother. He said, it often happens, this is John Calvin, I'm quoting, it often happens that when God calls us to follow him, our parents or our wife or our children draw us in the opposite direction, and we cannot give equal attention to everything. Therefore, we should devote ourselves to the interests of men as long as they do not interfere with the worship and obedience which we owe to God. You see what Calvin is saying here. He's saying that Jesus is having to turn Mary over to John because he is putting his father first. And some of you here this morning, some of you listening online, are Christians, you want to follow the Lord, but you're letting another human being and what they want interfere with your discipleship. You're letting someone else, and I don't even care if it's a husband or a wife, you're letting someone else pull you away from obedience to God. Jesus said that I come first. By going to the cross, Jesus is ultimately caring for Mary in a far greater way than he could have remaining alive. Think if Jesus had remained alive. If he had never gone to the cross, he would have cared for Mary for sure. He would have cared for her physical needs. He would have cared for her emotional needs. And when she died, she would have gone straight to hell. When Jesus went to the cross, he bought Mary's soul. He bore her sins and he granted her forgiveness and he gave her a place in heaven forever with him where she will never again feel want. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' death had a purpose. He didn't die just as some victim. Jesus' purpose for going to the cross is the same for us as it was for Mary that day. Notice here that Jesus, it says in verse 20, was crucified near the city. He wasn't crucified in the city. Now again, Rome had its reasons for that. Rome wanted people to be threatened on their way into the city. But I think biblically speaking, Jesus was crucified outside of the city because, brothers and sisters, that's where all the sacrifices happened. Exodus 29, 14, the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And this is exactly how the author of Hebrews describes Jesus' death. He says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, those bodies are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate just as a sacrifice in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 2 Corinthians 5.21, which I read as our assurance of faith, it says this, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, because of the cross, there is a great transfer that takes place. 
as everything that he has by his perfect life of obedience is given to us. And everything that we have by our sinful life is given to him on the cross. And all of the things that he bore that day, he bore our sin, he bore our nakedness, and he bore our shame. Brothers and sisters, on the cross, Jesus had his dignity stripped from him so that one day we might stand in glory, clothed in his beautiful, sinless righteousness and be proclared heirs of the kingdom. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're so thankful for the cross. Father, it was on that old rugged cross that the worst thing that has ever happened in human history occurred. And yet at the same time, it was the best. Father, thank you that you used that sacrifice for our good. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you willingly went there to save us. Thank you in your name. Amen.